Well, good morning, everyone. As a church, we've been reading this book, Transformed Life, and we're looking at the next passage of that book this morning. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians is what it's based on. I went through the commentaries and they dissect every element, even of that title. Did Paul write it? Well, at least most thought yes, and it's considered the greatest of all his epistles. The supreme letter, the queen of epistles, they called it. And Coleridge says it's the divinest composition of man. It makes it sound worth reading. Was it to the Ephesians? Well, again, there's some doubt because he spent three years in Ephesus, and yet, unlike in his other letters, he gives no personal greetings and talks as if he's only heard of their faith and love rather than known it. But it's likely to have been written to one of the churches in that area and passed around, which may be why it doesn't have specific personal greetings. It was delivered and circulated by Tychicus, who would have taken the papyrus and had it read out in each of the churches. Finally, they call it Epistle. Well, maybe that sounds a bit of a misleading name. I don't know about you, but if you hear the word Epistle, you perhaps think of something that's a theological treatise. But actually, of course, originally, they were personal letters. When Alan and I were in Honduras in a location on the edge of the rainforest for four years, the worst thing for me about being in that place far from home with no electricity or telephone lines was being cut off from family back here and especially my mum because I knew my mum always loved her family close and in regular contact. So I wrote letters. Well, Post was a bit spurious, but my family and I and many other supporters enjoyed writing to each other, and we nicknamed my family letters epistles, and I numbered them and gave them page numbers because they were often pretty long. And after they went to my mum and dad, they were passed around, my siblings and my cousin, a little bit like Paul's epistles were here. And I reckon my family and I knew more, not less, about each other after those four years away. Demetrius says everyone reveals his own soul in his letters. And surely Paul does that in these letters, reveals his own soul. He takes the pattern of a standard letter of his day with greetings, with a main body, with thanksgiving with closing greetings, but he Christianizes it. So the thanksgiving is to God. The closing greetings are blessings from God. And we see so much of his heart in those letters as he writes and prays and praises and helps those young churches which he has been part of founding. And although he was just addressing current issues the churches faced, That teaching is almost like eternal teaching. We can pick it up now and it's still relevant and it's still powerful. The passage we read today is one sentence in Greek, the whole of those verses. And it's an amazing prayer and thanksgiving. We all know there's great power in praying for each other. But what do we pray 
Are we straight in there with our shopping list requests? Supplication, petition, asking for things. Mostly focusing on what's lacking, what's missing, what's needed. Asking perhaps for life to be easy, for healthy bodies, for freedom from pain, for everything to go right, for God to bless us with material wealth, money, cars, houses. Yes, of course we can pray for all that because God loves us and he's promised to provide for us. But that is not where Paul begins. It's not his primary focus. He starts by saying, ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The message says, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. I pray when I'm reminded by emails or texts often, and I'm deeply blessed by those of you that send those because it helps us to cover one another. But I'm also struck by Paul's constancy. He says he keeps on praying. It isn't something he just does when he's prompted by a text or an email. He constantly remembers the people of God, thankfully. And first of all, with thanksgiving, not requests. Not for earthly, worldly, temporary blessings, but for their faith, their solid trust in Jesus. And then for the resultant love they show for the saints, for God's holy people, for God's consecrated people. James, in his epistle, his letter says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you mine by what I do. Faith not accompanied by actions is dead. Love for Christ is shown in love for others. Paul, in other epistles, says... Faith expresses itself through love. And then there's that tremendous passage often used in weddings, which I'm sure you've heard. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I've got the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship and boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't proud, doesn't dishonour others, isn't self-seeking, isn't easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Delights in e- not in, doesn't delight in evil, rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Swift once said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love each other. Brothers and sisters, can we be Christ-like enough to love each other despite differing viewpoints and approaches and worship styles, despite our own different preferences and gifts, despite our weaknesses and failings? Can you love me despite the wrong I do you? Can you forgive me as God does? Can I forgive you? 
So he thanks God for their faith outworking in love. With thanks for that. And then he comes on to the asking. And again, there's his perseverance and his faithfulness. I keep asking. He doesn't ask once and then gives up. He keeps asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. Now that's a prayer we could really bless each other with. Many times in life we don't get our priorities right. We get so tied up in things that don't really matter. And we miss out or we skimp on things that really do matter. We all have many tasks to do in this world and obviously they need doing. But we need to constantly keep our minds also on the things of eternity and especially relationships with friends, with family and above all else with God, the glorious Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we get to know him better? We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom in Greek is Sophia. Somebody told me that their daughter is called Sophia this week. I won't embarrass her by saying who. And that she does have a real wisdom, so it's a good name for her. Wisdom means going deeper and deeper into the knowledge of eternal truths. We need to be a thinking people, a people on a journey of personal discovery with a readjusted sense of proportion. So we take the time to let God reveal himself to us. So we may see what we couldn't see naturally and know what we didn't know, that glorious father of love, who adores us so much he sent his son to die and be raised for us. So to know God better, that should be one of our main aims in life. We all have earthly families, parents, children, siblings, brothers and sisters, in Christ, if not natural ones. And for some, our experiences of those relationships are wonderful, huge causes of joy and delight. I thank God for my parents who inputted so much love, support and blessing into my life over the years. I thank God for my husband, who through thick and thin is always there caring for and providing for Mark and I, watching over us. And I thank God for my son. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> Bit of embarrassment here. Such a precious gift, given relatively late in life. And I trust that I'll never, ever take that gift for granted. Motherhood has involved self-sacrifice and much investment of myself, but the payback is out of this world. The joy, the delight in watching your own children grow is amazing. Nothing really can replace that. And there's also, for me, siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents who have all invested into my life. And to God, I am so grateful for that blessing. But I know for many others, the experience is not as easy. I know that there 
family relationships may be characterised by strife and troubles and loss and much greater challenges than I've ever faced. But all of us have a God of love who wants to walk beside us, who wants us to know him, who wants to live in us. And we have a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Our world's often full of despair and pessimism. But Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which God calls us, a hope of eternal life and manifold blessings, a hope through Christ's death of all being united in him and looking forward to eternity in the presence of our ever-loving God. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We walk with our Father, the creator of the universe, the ever-faithful one, and we know and enjoy his care. It's not a vague hope, like wanting our football team to win the league, or hoping to find a quick parking space and have green traffic lights because we're running late for that meeting. It's a sure hope, a confident expectation in the fulfilment of the promises of God, a secure hope. Last week, we heard of some of the riches of his glorious inheritance, the glorious inheritance we share in as the saints. We're chosen by God to be holy and blameless, different from the world, to stand out as God's children in the beauty of our characters in Christ. We're forgiven. Nothing we've done or not done or thought or not thought or said or not said, can separate us from God's love. We're blameless through the death of Christ. And we're adopted as his sons and heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We know our future of joy and peace is totally secure. And we're filled with his Holy Spirit to prove it and to give us a foretaste of all that's to come. So we can live in the light of those eternal blessings dispelling the darkness and changing the way we live now because of the hope that we have. So we have a greater impetus to serve God and to see others come into his kingdom of justice, truth and love. Sometimes this life seems dark. The circumstances And the sins and mistakes of others and of our own sins and errors, they bring pain. They bring lost opportunities. They bring a sense of helplessness sometimes in the face of evil. But Paul also says we may know God's incomparably great power exerted when Christ died. Not just dying, but being raised back to life and ascending into heaven. The utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength, says the message. Christ has not only been through suffering for us, but he's also been through death. The ultimate destruction of all, the ultimate separation from God, and all that brings life and hope. 
But brothers and sisters, death could not hold him. Hallelujah. He was raised back to life and to glory. And he sits now at the Father's side with his redeeming work complete. In the heavenly realms, holding our spiritual blessings for us and distributing them to us. So they cannot be touched by the enemy, by the evil one's schemes. He sits in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Nothing can defeat him. Nothing can stop the plans and purposes of God being fulfilled. God has placed all things under his feet. The message says he's in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all and he has the final word on everything. Head over everything. For who? Paul goes on to say, for the church, for the body of Christ, for us. He sits there and intercedes for us. He empowers us. He fills us with the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, the message says the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. We are Christ's body. Many of you may have heard of St. Teresa of Avila's prayer. This is in the 1500s. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things pass away but God never changes. Patience obtains all this. Those who have God find they lack nothing. God alone suffices. We are his body, the completion of him who completes all things everywhere. We are his body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. This book has been focusing on our identity, our belonging, our purpose. And so again, in today's passage, we see those things, our identity in Christ. I'm not just Rosemary Robinson, daughter of Jeff and Eileen White, wife of Alan, mother and Mark. I'm the daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who has filled me with his spirit, who loves me, who has taken me as a child. We see our belonging both to the glorious Father to our brother and Lord Jesus Christ and to one another as his people, united through his death. No matter who we are, slave or free, male or female, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, it does not matter where you've come from. In him we are united as one. And we see our purpose, to be God's hand and feet on this earth, with Christ as the head, the and us as the body, Christ directing us, Christ inspiring us, Christ guiding us, but working through us to show forth his love and compassion 
into the world and how he longs to reconcile the world to himself through us. So let's close by praying the words of Paul together. Glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Lord, we pray we will know who we are in you. We will know all you've given us and called us to be, both as individuals and as your body. And we pray we will listen to you, our head, so that with your love and your power, we can help you to transform the world and establish your kingdom, both now and for all eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.